This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, On the Media, Mayday.us, Moyers and Company, and Activism from Best of the Left. Now, who's ready for some cautious optimism and slow progress? I have some unfortunately depressing news for you. Uh, There was this study I told you about a couple of months ago, I think it was, and it showed how likely are people's political uh, desires, how likely are those desires to be translated into law based on that individual's socioeconomic standing. And as it turned out, the richer you were, the more likely it was that the desires you had in terms of policy were to become actual law. And this made us say, wait a second, this seems to be evidence of that plutocratic system that we've been talking about for so long, that the legislative priorities of our elected officials don't seem to actually reflect those of the average person. We now have further news along these lines. This is is just disgusting. I have really no other way to soften this. Uh, There's a new study by two political science professors which found that ordinary Americans have virtually no impact whatsoever on the making of national policy in the United States. The analysts found that rich individuals and business controlled interest groups largely shape policy in this country. The study is called Testing Theories of American Politics Elites interest groups and average citizens it will be in the fall 2014 edition of perspectives on politics and what it shows is that uh, when looking at 1779 national policy issues for which they could gauge the preferences of average citizens economic elites and mass-based internet uh, interest groups and business dominated interest groups the outcomes tended to go in the direction of those favored by the interest groups and by the economic elites and had a very very small correlation to the desires of average and ordinary citizens the analysts found this is the key line from the entire thing the analysts found that when controlling for the power of economic elites and organized interest groups the influence of ordinary americans registers at a non-significant near-zero level. The analysts further discovered that rich individuals and business-dominated interest groups dominate the policy-making process. If the views of the citizens and the economic elites and the business groups were the same, this might not be that much of a concern. As we know, though, that is absolutely not the case, and we see yet more evidence that we are not uh, maybe going in the direction of a completely plutocratic society where the rich and elites have their desires reflected by the government and legislators whereas the average american does not we're there right now lewis it's interesting to think about uh... situations in which uh... you think that policy uh... you know or a certain law was enacted in favor of just the normal people maybe like marijuana legalization or something like that but then when you think about it behind the scenes yeah chances are philip morris big tobacco companies uh you know big uh, farm companies and farmers lots of rich people probably 
thought that they could make a lot of money off that. So maybe that's the only reason it passed. And this is why I'm not optimistic about when I hear about all of the the FCC comments, the comments that were made to the FCC regarding net neutrality. That's great. But I'm not that optimistic because of studies like this, which show us that ultimately it is the desires of the rich and the big corporations and their lobbyists that will actually be made into law. Is it a viable strategy, I wonder, I'm just thinking out loud here, to try to influence as, it, as individual citizens, to try to influence the rich and big corporations to try to get them to see that they should support what the average citizen wants. I mean, is it a better strategy at this point to just try to kind of co-opt the desires of the rich? Maybe that would be more effective. Unless you can convince them that uh, there is a lot of money involved in whatever you're proposing for them. Uh, I don't see the point. It would be completely futile. Yeah, well, that's what we're really getting to. If we could disconnect money from politics and interrupt the influence buying that is really at the heart of all of this, that's really the primary and most important step right now because we're, we're living in a plutocratic society, ladies and gentlemen. The studies show it. Comcast uh, under attack for bad customer service. Actually, the, you know, it's it's uh, uh, their cus customer retention department is what the if you if you say I want to cancel, that's that's who you get routed to apparently. Uh, at least according to some of the call, one of the callers of this program worked in such a, a division. And uh, Ryan Block, uh, you know, sharing his story, and his uh, wife, the writer Veronica Belmont. He is the uh, former editor of the tech site Ed, Ed, Engadget and a product developer at AOL. And uh, <laughs> it's quite quite a phone call. What it also what it what it highlights though is not that can, you know Comcast is some big evil company or AT and T or fill in, you know fill in the blank. It's that these very large corporations across America, and we saw the same thing with the rant that I just gave about the you know, CCA and GEA group, how these private prison companies now are, are, are sculpting and shaping the comprehensive immigration reform so that it will guarantee f over 4 million prisoners for them, uh, number one. And number two, the, the, you know, the mayor who called in earlier, uh, Mayor Adam O'Neill, Conservative white Republican mayor of Bell Bellhaven, North Carolina, who's you know SaveOurHospital.org, who's saying enough already. And uh, this this is uh, this is pretty grim stuff. What's going on? And what and what and because you know his town is under attack by a hospital corporation, a not-for-profit hospital corporation that pays its CEO two million bucks a year. This is this is. Crony capitalism writ large. And it's crony capitalism enabled, in fact, I would say caused by the Supreme Court of the United States 
coming up with doctrines that have become law that no Congress has ever put forward in the history of this republic. In fact, to the contrary, when Congress acts on corruption of public officials, they try to stop it. The Tillman Act in 1907, the, the uh, uh, election reforms of 1974, the, the you know, most recently McCain-Feingold. I mean, over and over and over again, Congress has tried to put an end to corruption. And there's a very simple reason for this. Members of Congress, both at the state and federal level, would much rather be legislating or playing golf than having to beg rich people for money. It's real simple. And the Supreme Court says, no, sorry, you've got to beg rich people for money. And you've got to let corporations buy you off, too. And not only has this never been voted into place by any legislature ever anywhere, this is wholly the creation of the United States Supreme Court, in large part since Lewis Powell was put on the court by Richard Dixon in 1972. Not only is that the case, but the only way that we can fix this is by going around the Supreme Court which takes us to move to amend, movetoamend.org. If we were to amend the Constitution and say corporations do not have the rights of persons enumerated under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and, and, and money is not considered to be speech and thus protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, if we were to do those two things, then Congress would immediately, and I say this from knowing members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, Congress would immediately say, okay, we don't have to beg for money six hours a day anymore. That's what McCain-Feingold was all about. It's why John McCain and Russ Feingold, the most conservative and the most liberal members of the United States Senate, respectively, got together and said, let's pass a damn law. We're sick of this. Maximum $2,200 contribution per year. That's it. We're going to drive down the cost of elections. Now, why is it you don't know about this? Well, could be that your television network, where people get a lot of their news, whether it's cable TV, whether it's CNN or MSNBC or, or uh, Fox News or ABC, CBS, NBC, they're not going to tell you what I just told you. Because when a billion dollars gets spent on a presidential campaign, as was spent in 2012 by the Obama campaign and was spent in 2012 by the Romney campaign, when $2 billion gets dropped, when five, six, seven billion dollars gets dropped nationwide in political campaigns from coast to coast for the House, for the Senate, for state houses, state senates, governors, all of these things, when six, five, six, seven billion dollars gets spent, where does it get spent? Probably solidly 75 to 80 percent of it goes to local TV and network television. But specifically local TV. To the television industry. And so they're not going to tell you about this. Some little bit of it goes to radio. It goes mostly to music radio and to sports radio, which is why you will hear about this. And frankly, I, you know, I've I've heard Michael Savage go off on these rants. It's been a it's been a lot of years. Well, it's been four years specifically since we lived in in Portland, Oregon, and we used to Louise and I used to take long drives after I got off the air, and we'd drive out to to Oregon City. There's a great little pizza place out there that had gluten free pizza. We'd drive out there for lunch, and all the way there, we'd flip on the radio and listen to Mark Levin or listen to Matt Michael Savage or some other, you know, it just, yeah, what, what are they up to? 
we're taking the other side. We need to know what's going on. And, and, and I think, frankly, Michael Savage does very entertaining talk radio. I think he's, very, he's a very talented guy, as is Mark Levin, for that matter. Those are the two that we could listen to during the time part that we were driving. And it was amazing to me that they would very often be saying the same things I was saying about the corruption of our public officials. And occasionally they would even tie it back to the Supreme Court. I think this is an issue that is bipartisan. I think this is an issue that transcends politics, it transcends party. It's called corporatism. Benito Mussolini invented a term for the merger of corporations and state. He called it fascism. And now you see, you know, when 70% of the NSA's budget has been outsourced and those private corporations are lobbying Congress for the NSA to do more and more spying, you wonder why? Because there's money in it. This is not about the national security of the United States. I mean, at a thin layer, you know, the icing on top of the cake is the national security, but the cake itself, that's money for contractors. Whether it's war, whether it's national security, whether it's prisons, whether it's drug policy. I mean, you name it. You, you drill into any of it, whether it's giant corporations, whether it's keeping wages low, whether it's banksterizing, financializing the economy, whatever it may be. When you get right down to the core of it, you find that at the core of it is, is corporatism, is the doctrine that money is speech and corporations are people. Now, I know that some of my conservative colleagues, I read this, uh, I don't know it for a fact, but I read it in Politico a few months ago that uh, Limbaugh and Hannity and a couple of these guys were getting literally millions of dollars from Koch Brother Connected Companies and, and similar organizations. And, of course, that doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen with a lot, with a lot of the conservative shows, but the, some of the big names, they're probably not going to talk about these things. But, but, the, but the ones who are not getting the money... It's like, you know, it's like uh, uh, Mark Felt, the number two guy in the FBI, told Bob Woodward when he was operating under the pseudonym of Deep Throat, follow the money. You want to know what's going on in this country? Follow the money. Mayday! Mayday! Except this is a positive mayday. Uh, on May 1st, uh, Professor Larry Lessig started a pack that's excellent. It's the Mayday Pack. In fact, it's being called the Super Pack to end all Super Packs, which of course I love. Uh, now, same uh, general thought as Wolf Pack, which is to get money out of politics. So obviously, I couldn't agree more with it. Professor Larry Lessig is the godfather of this movement, uh, so I was thrilled to see that he was doing this slightly different approach, which is great. We want to attack this problem from all different angles, and in fact, that's part of the reason that Professor Larry Lessig wants to name one of his groups Root Strikers, because you have to strike the root of the problem from uh, several different sides to make sure that the problematic tree goes down. <laughs> okay, so how is he striking at it? Well, what he wanted to do was, first in the first month, try to raise a million dollars which he then got uh, rich donors to pledge that they would 
match that million dollars, check, did it in the first month. And then by 4th of July, by Friday, last Friday, they had to raise $5 million to get another $5 million matched. What sick they learn? Now, very appropriate fireworks on the 4th of July. They did it. And they did it a little bit before the deadline, which is amazing. Believe me, I understand this because we're in this movement. We want to get money out of politics, and you got to have money to get money out of politics. We understand the irony of that as well. We believe in fighting with fire, fire with fire. So, in all, he raised six million from small donors, which were matched by six million from large donors. You've got twelve million dollars that they have raised. That is an amazing amount. God bless their hearts. That's fantastic, and they're going to spend it on the next midterms. And if this works, well, it's a proving ground, and they can get even a bigger amount of money later to do this on an industrial scale. Godspeed. So now, who, how are they going to spend the money? Who are they going to spend it on? This is really interesting. They're going to announce soon the five house races. Which they are going to target. Now they got to make sure that they're upsets so that people know, hey, wait a minute, when the Mayday Pack came for you, you were done for. So do not oppose them. And what do they come for you? Well, they come for you if you oppose reform. If you don't want to get money out of politics, you love money in politics, and you think, great, all my donors are giving me a lot of money, and I'm ecstatic about that. Well, that's when they're going to come for you. I mean, obviously, as the founder of Wolfpack, Fairly aggressively named PAC on similar grounds. I couldn't be happier with that concept. In fact, it was the original concept for Wolfpac. We wanted to do something similar, but we didn't think we could raise the kind of money that Professor Lessig did. So, again, for the second time, bless his heart. So, there's a little bit further explanation here of the plan. They say, We're looking for districts in which a victory would signal that conventional wisdom was wrong, that voters, that is, could be mobilized on the basis of this issue enough to dislodge even dominant incumbents. So, if they can show that, well, you see, then they would have a really strong pack that others would fear. And look, honestly, that's the way politics works in today's America. People fear the NRA, they don't oppose them, and even if 93% of Americans want federal background checks, they're so scared of the NRA, they won't go and change that rule. And that's literally what happened in the most recent Congress. And so, basically, Professor Lessig saying, if you fear them, I got something else to fear for you. <laughs> Obviously, I love that, right? Now, of course, there's a million critics. Whenever you're doing anything positive and constructive, there's always going to be a million critics. Well, you know, it, this is bipartisan effort, but how bipartisan could it be? Because you know, uh, none of the Republicans are in favor of getting money out of politics. That's kind of true, but at the national level, right? And, they, and in this case, they are going at the national level. By the way, at the local and state level, that's not true. A lot of Republicans don't like money in politics at all, whether it's Bloomberg money, Soros money, and a lot of them don't like the Rove-directed money or even the Coke money, depending on which state you're in, right? But at the national level, there's very few Republicans that support getting money out of politics. But you know what? There's also a lot of dirty Democrats. There's a lot of Democrats who love the money in politics. So it's actually fairly easy to target Republicans and Democrats. So I don't believe that criticism at all. And then you've got so many others. Oh, but you know what? Uh, there's so many different piece of legislation to support, hey, you know what? Let's get started somewhere. <laughs> okay, and this is a hell of a start. So don't worry about any of the nonsense criticism that just chips away at this. They'll always be doubters, they'll all be, always be haters. But look, they already proved the haters wrong by uh, collecting this uh, enormous amount of money. Now some say it's not gonna be enough. 
hey, let's give it a shot. <laughs> okay, they didn't have $12 million a couple of months ago. Now they do. At least the battle is joined. So now at Wolfpack, we feel slightly differently about, again, the, the correct strategy, even though we support this strategy as well, 100%. Okay, Our strategy is to call for a specific amendment and to get a constitutional convention to do so. But both of those things can happen at the same time. Our website's wolf-pack.com. Uh, Mayday site, which I, by the way, I gave to, is also fantastic. And just because they raise the money now doesn't mean you shouldn't support them in every other way, which you should do starting forward. Because this is not the end of the plan. This is the beginning of the plan. Now that they raise the money, it's time to attack. And once again, you know I'm going to be in favor of that. So great development today in getting money out of politics. The battle is joined. They call it the May Day Super PAC. That's May Day not as in the holiday, but as in the distress call. The emergency is the state of politics in this country, where the Supreme Court says money is speech, and therefore elections are dominated by the loudest voices. Enter May Day Super PAC, which intends to raise ungodly sums of money to elect legislators who will reform the system altogether. Last weekend, just in time for the Independence Day deadline, 50,000 Americans brought May Day to its initial fundraising goal of $5 million, a sum matched dollar for dollar by, yes, big political donors. The founder of May Day is Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Lessig, who says the final hours were touch and go because the American public doesn't necessarily obsess about the corrupting influence of money in politics. Voters don't care about campaign finance. They never have cared about campaign finance. They didn't care about McCain-Feingold. They don't care about super PACs. People do not care about campaign finance reform. It is not a voting issue. You've seen those polls, and they're not riled up about it. But at least 50,000 people were sufficiently riled up to put May Day Pack over the top, ponying up half the goal in the last 48 hours before the deadline. So now that he has the war chest, how to use big money to fight big money. Lawrence Lessig joins me now. Larry, welcome back to On the Media. Great to be here. Gotta begin with the obvious irony. Money buys elections. The law permits it. You want to change the laws. You need to elect friendly members of Congress. So use money to buy elections. What is wrong with that picture? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong because, you know, what we're doing is using an imperfect system to get a more perfect system, just like, you know, there was a time when only men could vote, then women pushed men to change that unjust system to make it so men and women could vote both. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to use the system we've got to make a system that people have a reason to believe in again. Look, there's no more than 150,000 Americans who are the relevant funders of campaigns. That's about 0.05% of America, about the same number of people as are named Lester in the United States. <laughs> and what that does is it produces a world where Congress is responsive to the Lesters and they're not responsive to the rest of us. We've got to change that. 
And we can change that if we change the way elections are funded. Where did you come up with the Lester metric? My first name is Lester, too. So I just uh, happened to uh, know how many Lesters there were in the United States. The Internet told me that. And then when I saw the number of relevant funders, it clicked. The United States is Lesterland. That's just a <laughs> fundamental problem with the way we elect people in the United States. This is not a hot-button issue for most Americans. Why should it be? It's not a hot-button issue because most Americans don't think there's anything you can do about it. But that produces this politics of resignation. People just kind of accept the status quo, even though they really radically would love to see a different status quo. But if you can give them a plan, a way to see how we could change the influence of money in politics, we think they'll rally to it. What's the plan? Well, right now in 2014, we're going to run in five races to demonstrate the thing that people in Washington don't believe, which is that... Americans care about the corrupting influence of money in politics, and they want to do something about it. And when we run in those five races and move the dial and win in as many as we can, that will create this recognition that leads us into 2016 when we want to run many, many more races to win a Congress in 2016 committed to fundamental reform in the way elections are funded. And one of the things I think this astonishing goal of raising $5 million in a month did was to give people the sense that there was something we could do, and 50,000 people rallied to doing it. Well, $5 million in a month is a quixotic undertaking and uh, the triumph to have pulled off, and now you have actually $12 million in the bank with the matching funds and some other stuff that's coming over the transom, but $12 million for a super PAC, in the scheme of things, not that big a sum. You're right. It's not that big a sum if what we were doing this year was trying to take on every single race where we'd have to win to get a majority in Congress committed to fundamental reform. But this year is not about that. This year is about a pilot in just five races. And so, you know, we're going to have more than $2 million in each of those five races, which is a lot of money. And we think that will be enough to rally people in those districts to this cause. What kind of legislation are you envisioning that can support the delesterization of the process? Republicans push the idea of vouchers that they would give out to every voter to support the idea of voters using those vouchers to give to candidates who raise their funds in small-dollar chunks only. Democrats like John Sarbanes have a bill called the Government by the People Act that would match small-dollar contributions so that candidates can afford to run winning campaigns taking small contributions only. That change would make them responsive to a wider swath of Americans as opposed to the current system where they're obsessively responsive to the Lesters. Citizens United, the Supreme Court case that ruled that money is essentially, for political purposes, speech, undermined almost all existing campaign finance legislation. How to get around the immovable obstacle that is Citizens United? The only way to change Citizens United would be to amend the Constitution. You know, look, I'm not actually convinced that we have to worry about Citizens United if we lived in a world where elections were funded by all of us as opposed to the tiniest fraction of the 1% of us. We might have to. Let's see. But the point is, we can make this first step, this first change, without worrying about that problem. And that's the objective of the May Day PAC. Elect a Congress that will bring about that reform so that we can get a Congress responsive to all of us, not just to the Lesters. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Lester Lawrence Lessig is the founder of Mayday Pack and a law professor at Harvard Law School. Signs of a better world, causes we understand, failures we expect to occur and bring redemption for our sins. Safety from the crowds, in the shadows of the run, we ride our own side of house, rules to keep alive, to keep alive, the search for systems we can trust, we can lock into. On May 1st, we launched a campaign to crowdfund a super PAC powerful enough to end all super PACs by electing a Congress committed to fundamental reform in the way campaigns are funded by 2016. We did this because we believe, not as Democrats or as Republicans, but as citizens, that our Congress is crippled by its dependence on campaign cash and on the cronies who supply it, and that we won't make progress on any important issue until we change the way campaigns are funded. The response to our campaign astonished even me. More than 50,000 people helped us crowdfund close to $7 million, making this the largest crowdfunded campaign to change Congress ever. Now we've turned to the battle to win elections. Our goal in this cycle is to prove something that almost no one in Washington believes, that Americans care enough about the corruption of their government to vote for real and fundamental change. We will enter a range of races this election cycle, supporting both Democrats and Republicans, to show that Americans do care using every tool we can. From traditional media to the wonders of Facebook, we will recruit voters to deliver a single message to the politicians that we all, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, are tired of the special interest and the cronies controlling our government, and that we want our democracy back. Now, this won't be easy. It's a tough time to build a cross-partisan movement in America. Neither party will like us much, nor will the media, but nothing important is easy. And nothing could be as important as this. We inherited from our parents a democracy we could be proud of. Not perfect, not perfectly just, and not without great mistakes in its past, but always striving, as the Constitution puts it, for a more perfect union. And one that has inspired democracies around the world. But no one is inspired by our democracy today. Our government would make Lincoln, remember, of, by, and for the people, weep. We are passing to our kids a system that does not work. And as long as our representatives are held hostage to their funders, and their funders are not all of us, it will not work. We need to put aside our partisan shields. We need to stand together as citizens. That is our job now. We all see the problem, but we must all come to see this too that we still have the power to fix it. Join us. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction 
restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. There's no way to say it nicely. The stench of corruption hangs over American politics like smog over Shanghai. Every day brings new headlines. If it's not in Chris Christie's New Jersey, it's in Ray Nagin's New Orleans, where the former mayor has been convicted for taking bribes and kickbacks. And in our nation's capital, the revolving door whirls like a runaway carousel, delivering one member of Congress or top staffer after another into the waiting arms of corporate mercenaries offering top dollar for services rendered, never mind the conflicts of interest. And all the while, gushers of money pour into political campaigns nonstop, producing a marionette government of legalized theft. You would think all this sleaze would be enough to turn everyone off, and it has indeed provoked dangerously widespread cynicism and apathy, but not among the two men on this broadcast. You'll meet Lawrence Lessig later in the show, but first... We're back with David Simon, the former crime reporter turned television producer. He created two acclaimed series for HBO, Treme, about the struggle to rebuild post-Katrina New Orleans and The Wire, the story of crime and punishment in the streets of Baltimore. Campaign runs on dollars. You know it. Each showed how corrupted capitalism and politics leave poor people at the mercy of a rigged system. You are a moral. Are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. I got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? What I remember so vividly after watching that scene is that the law shrugged. That's quite often the effect of money in politics. The system works only for those who pay to play, who have bought the rule-making machinery of government. As David Simon put it when he was here two weeks ago, you can buy these guys on the cheap, and capital's been at it a long time, and the rules have been relaxed, and the Supreme Court has walked away from any sort of responsibility to maintain democracy at that level. That's the, the aspect of government that's broken. Simon talked about this last fall in a speech at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Australia. Here's the conclusion of his message. The last job of capitalism, having won all the battles against labor, having acquired the ultimate authority, almost the ultimate moral authority over what's a good idea or what's not, or what's valued and what's not, the last journey for capital in my country has been to buy the electoral process, the one venue for reform that remained. And ultimately, right now, capital is, has effectively purchased the government. Your summation is grim but true. Capital owns our politics. What do we do about it? I think if I could fix one thing, it would be campaign finance reform. The logic of Citizens United and other decisions that are framed around that. Um, certainly our judicial branch has failed to, uh, to value the idea of one man, one vote. You don't count more because you run a corporation and you can heave money in favor of your political philosophy onto the process. You don't count more. You're one guy 
Free you speech, know? the court has said. Of course. Free speech of under course. the First Amendment, corporations have the and, right of... And you know what? Right. And you know what? Everyone reacted the wrong way when they heard that decision. They all, uh, the, the, the chant from the left became, corporations are people? Corporations are not people. Well, no, actually under the law, uh, that's the reason for corporations. If, if, you know, they are indeed given the rights of individuals, and that's why you form corporations, and that's how the law treats them. They're sociopaths as people. You know, they report all, <laughs> they have to report their profit to the, I mean, that's who they are, but, you know, by definition, you know, if, if all you care about is your profit to the, sh to the shareholders, you know, and nothing else in human terms, you're probably a sociopath. But okay, they get to exist as, no, it was that speech is money. That was, when, when you start equating speech with money, and, and you see them as being comparable, money is, is in fundamental, in a fundamental regard, the opposite of speech. Or it's a kind of speech so foul that it shouldn't be, it shouldn't have the weight it has in our democracy. And that, to me, was the uh, nails in the coffin. If you can't fix the elections so that they actually resemble the popular will, if the combination of the monetization of the elections and gerrymandering create a bicameral legislature that doesn't in any way reflect the will of the American people, you've, you've reached the end game for democracy, and I think we have. You were very clear in your Australian speech that capitalism is no blueprint for building a society. It's not the road to a just country, you say. Right? Well, it's not. It, it, you know, it's a tool for building wealth. If wealth is the only measure of your society, uh, I'm not saying it isn't a measure, but if wealth is, is the only measure of society and there's no distinction on how that wealth is going to be distributed among the various classes or how that wealth is going to be put to the um, needs of the society or how the society is going to be protected from inevitable threat, if how the society's infrastructure, shared infrastructure, uh, is fashioned and whether or not it's sustainable, um, if all those things are not metrics and if it's just about generating mass wealth, then... You know, what are we saying? What are we saying about the human condition? What are we saying about our society's condition? And how do you tame the greed? You have to do it legislatively. And how do you do that when your legislative uh, aspect has been completely purchased by the very capital that is being amassed? That's the problem. You know, uh, there isn't a Teddy Roosevelt confronting these robber barons. Are you angry about this? Aren't you? Yes. I mean, I mean, listen, I have a good life. I, I go, you know. Same I, here. I, I, you know, go to the playground with my kid. I watch the game on Saturday. I'm not like an angry person, but I can't look at politics and be sanguine about where we're going. And you understand why so many people whose anger turns to uh, resignation. Resignation or contempt for government as an idea. That's a luxury yeah. we don't have. It is basically either on one side, it's people who think I can do well on my own with, and screw my neighbor. And it's basically greed wrapping itself in the mantle of a legitimate ideology. Or it's just people who are not doing well who are saying, you know, the government's my enemy. If democracy is going to work, the government in some sense is you and your neighbors. And if it's not, that's the fight to have. But right now, I have to say, they've purchased so much and so deeply. And the contempt for... Uh, the idea of the popular will is so firm in the people who are um, rigging the game that the logical outcome a generation from now may be that just people pick up a brick. And I don't know what happens after people pick up a brick. Nobody does. Nobody quite knows where it goes. Revolution's all good when it's in theory. Um, but you know, when the blood runs. Yeah, and I'm not saying I'm looking forward to the brick, but you know, 
it is there at the bottom. It's, you know, if enough people opt out and enough people get angry, enough people start to find themselves deeply at the margins. And increasingly, it, it starts to span across racial and, and social lines to include actual white folk. Um, it'll be an interesting dynamic. I don't know anyone who has made a more dire and dark uh, conclusion. Oh, no, no, I, no. This guy's to the... No, I don't. But 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 at the same time, you you don't give up. I mean, you ever read the uh, Camus, the myth, the myth of Sisyphus? Sisyphus, yes. Right. Well, you know, to, to in sum, uh, what I took from Camus was the idea that uh, to commit to a unlikely cause or a cause that is uh, seems almost certain of defeat um, seems absurd, uh, but to not commit is also absurd. Um, given the situation, uh, and only one choice of those two offers even the remote chance of dignity. There's, there's nowhere to go except to fight. Jason in uh, Deckard, Tennessee. Hey, Jason. Hey. What's up? Hey, it's, uh, we pronounce it Deckard. Oh, Deckard. Okay. Yes. Uh, good to talk to you, Tom. I've just uh, been listening to your show, and uh, I think a big problem with getting things done in the Middle East or anywhere in the world, we are the most powerful country in the world, and the citizenry needs to take control back of its government. Yeah. Because it's controlled mainly by... Uh, people who want to have influence in the world to increase their uh, wealth and whatnot or their power and and control uh, what goes on to their advantage, not to the good of the whole people. I think you know a really simple way to boil it down is to say that right now, Jason, we have the best government money can buy, and the, which is the consequence of a series of very specific Supreme Court decisions, Buckley versus Vallejo back in the 70s, um, and uh, uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti the next year, 76, 77, and uh, most recently McCutcheon and Citizens United. Right. And is there a way to reverse that? I mean, there are, there are two ways to, there are, there are, actually there are three ways to reverse Supreme Court decisions uh, when the Supreme Court goes out and starts making law or knocking down laws. Both are, by the way, things that the Constitution does not give them the power to do. The Supreme Court has so massively exceeded its authority that it's turned the United States from a democratic republic into a constitutional monarchy. They are monarchs, and they have more power than the monarchs of Europe. The King of, of Norway, the King of Denmark, the Queen of England, uh, the King of Spain, none of them have the power to strike down laws or to create law. Uh, whereas the Supreme Court has claimed that power for themselves, and it is a power not given to them, explicitly not given to them by the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution says the exact opposite. It says that the Supreme Court shall operate within limitations and under rules 
defined by Congress. It's Article Three, Section Two. You can read it yourself. It's plain English. And but so the three ways that you can reverse a bad Supreme Court decision. The first is to amend the Constitution, since the Supreme Court is saying that they are interpreting the Constitution. And if you if you change what the Constitution plainly says, then the Supreme Court has no choice but to go along with it. And we've done that a number of times, by the way. When the Supreme Court in 1856 under Roger Taney said in the Dred Scott decision that people are property and can be bought and sold, you know, that slavery was was constitutional, uh, we, after the Civil War, we amended the Constitution with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, making, you know, basically invalidating that Supreme Court decision. And we've done that a number of times. That's the most famous example, but we've done that a number of times over the years. So the problem with amending the Constitution is that you have to get two-thirds uh, two of the Senate and the House and three-quarters of the states to go along with it. And that's a really high bar. There have been over 29,000 attempts to amend the Constitution that have actually been introduced into Congress since the founding of our republic, yet we've only amended the Constitution 28 or 29 times. So it, that's a, a, a tough lift, but I think it's one that's possible. And the best group out there that's promoting this is called MoveToAmend.org, and you can open a local chapter in your hometown, you know, right out of your, your kitchen, uh, kitchen table or living room uh, by going to MoveToAmend.org. That's the first way. The second way is Congress can pass a law saying we are regulating the Supreme Court and we are stripping them of their authority to decide on this matter. Supreme Court may not decide on the matter of uh, abortion. This would be the, the dream of, of uh, Rick Santorum. Uh, the Supreme Court may not decide on, on corporate campaign limits. This would be the, you know, increasingly the dream of pretty much everybody. But Congress doesn't have enough of a spine and there's not enough of a consensus to make that happen. And the third way that you can change a Supreme Court decision is wait for the makeup of the Supreme Court to change. Uh, for the Supreme Court itself, you know, right now, most of these decisions that are really objectionable have been 5-4 decisions or 6-3 six, six, decisions going back to, to uh, uh, Buckley. I think, I'm not sure, I, I don't remember what Buckley was. But in any case, the, the modern era ones, McCutcheon and Citizens United, they've been 5-4 decisions. And so if just one person... In this case, it would be Anthony Kennedy were to retire or, God forbid, die. I'm, I, I'm not wishing that on anybody, but Kennedy is an old and frail man. He's pushing 80. He's, I think he's 78. Um, if he were to retire and President Obama were to replace him with somebody of the caliber of, of uh, Elena Kagan or Sonia Sotomayor, the two appointees that President Obama has put on the bench, uh, the, the court would very quickly reverse itself, I believe. Um, however, I doubt that they would reverse themselves about corporate personhood because that's been established for so long. And I doubt that they would reverse, reverse themselves fully. They would do a nuanced reversal. That's why I think the best way to do this is to amend the Constitution so that we're not subject to the political whims of the court. Make sense, Jason? It does. It does. In corporate personhood, I, I feel, is fair if a corporation is given the life expectancy of the, the common man. Well, yeah, which is impossible. But corporations have to have personhood. They have to be able to be sued, and they have to be able to own land, and they have to be able to pay taxes. But historically, they were called artificial persons, and there was a different set of rules for them than for what we call natural persons. And when the 14th Amendment was written and it said no person shall be denied equal protection under the law, it didn't say no natural person. And so the corporations have been claiming ever since the, 17, ever since the 1870s 
that what that means is that corporations have rights under the under the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has granted them now rights under at least four or five amendments to the Constitution and a couple of articles in the Constitution. And I believe that it's all wrong, and it needs to be under, undone by constitutional amendment. You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, momentum on overturning Citizens United. You should probably be sitting down and not driving or carrying anything heavy. Ready? The Senate actually did a thing. And if that's not shocking enough on its own, the thing the Senate did was vote 79 to 18 in favor of advancing a constitutional amendment that would overturn Citizens United. Technically, this vote just brings the debate on campaign finance reform and restoring the notion of representative democracy to the floor. But the Democrats, led by Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, are pushing for action right now specifically to make it a campaign issue for the midterm elections that are right around the corner. Frankly, if the Congress isn't going to pass any laws in the two weeks left until the end of the term, then I'm all for as much public debate on overturning Citizens United as we can get leading up to November 4th. So let's do what we can to keep the momentum building. Use the link in the show notes to find out how your senators voted, then call, email, write, and tweet to let them know that overturning Citizens United and reining in campaign spending is an issue you'll be voting on in just a few weeks. If they voted in favor of the measure, say thank you. You'll be watching for their leadership on this going forward. If they voted against, encourage them to reconsider as their job depends on a change of heart. Then give your representatives in the House a call. Every single one of them is up for re-election. Tell them you expect them to match the action in the Senate and introduce, co-sponsor, or support companion legislation. According to Talking Points Memo, Don Stewart, a spokesman for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, said Republicans are, quote, happy to debate the measure, but to be clear, there is zero support on our side for rewriting the First Amendment to restrict free speech, end quote. Yes, that is the ridiculous, self-serving load of crap it sounded like to you. I'm almost sorry to have to give it airtime, except the minority leader could possibly become the majority leader next month. So, before he has the power to quash any attempt to restore the legal right of Congress to establish campaign spending limits, let's get as many of our representatives on the record as we can. 2016 electioneering will follow immediately on the heels of the midterms. Restoring our democracy should be issue number one, and we can make it so by being extremely and respectfully pushy before Congress adjourns the current session.
you remember the IRS scandal? You know the whole point of the IRS scandal was to get the IRS to stop looking into um, mainly Republican groups, some Democratic groups too, that f get dark money in from their donors, contribute to politicians, and they don't want to be found out who they are, how much money they're giving, and the fact that oftentimes they're using charities so they can get tax deductions, but actually using it for political purposes, which is technically illegal. I love that, technically illegal. It's totally illegal, okay? It's not like illegal immigration where the guy is not documented, but it's arguable what kind of a quote unquote crime it might be. No, this is a crime, right? Now, the whole IRS scandal was nonsense. We've shown it to you a hundred times over. They investigated liberal groups just as much as they invested conservative groups, investigated. In fact, they went after liberal groups more often after the investigation, right? But the Republicans did all these hearings. It wasn't because they actually believed the IRS was doing wrong investigations. It was because they believed they were doing the right investigations. And they had to make sure that they stop investigating so that their donors could get a free ride and funnel more money to those same politicians. So, what did the IRS announce today? Mission accomplished. They're going to stop their investigations. So, Time Magazine explains. Amid ongoing controversy, perfect, over its scrutiny of nonprofits, the Internal Revenue Service has decided it will no longer screen approximately 80% of the organizations seeking tax exempt charitable status each year. So obviously the IRS isn't going to stop doing audits of all Americans, but the, what's at issue here was these nonprofits pretending to be charities but doing political donations. 80% of those investigations gone now. Have at it, Hoss. Let's talk about the consequences. Doing away with a review intended to counter fraud and prevent political and other non-charitable groups from misusing the tax code. That was the point of these investigations. Now they are not going to do them, right? 80% of them at least. Now, uh, President of the National Association of State Charity Officials. Now, these are the people running the charities. Shouldn't they be happy? No, they're not happy. Because now all these scam artists are going to come, and you're not going to know what the real charities are and what the fake charities are. Because there's no one, there's no cops to on the beat to tell you who's right and who's wrong, right? So they say the form 1023 easy, that's the new form that they put out now, will increase opportunity for fraud. Great. Uh, now, of course, that's not good news to anybody in America except Republican and some Democratic politicians who love that fraud funneled their way. Now, there's two different kinds of fraud, by the way. There's the little charities that'll spring up that'll pretend to be in favor of all these good things, but they didn't fill out any uh, real forms. It's they basically they said as easy as getting a library card. They get all this money and then they'll run, and you won't know if you're contributing to a good cancer fighting a cause or, or one that's a scam. And then the second kind is the one that they really care about, the political kind. So, explanation from time. Others worry that charities, nominally barred from political activity, will come to serve the same purpose as the powerful nonprofit organizations known as 501c4s, whose donations cannot be deducted from taxes. So, those are the independent expenditures that Citizens United allowed. That's what had all this money flow into our elections, hundreds of millions of dollars in every election cycle to buy off all of our politicians. Now, that was called a 501c4. Now, basically, they're not going to be investigating the 501c3s, which are supposed to be charities, like, hey, curing breast cancer, that kind of thing. No, no, no. They're not supposed to do a majority of their uh, activity in political field. Gone, gone. Nobody's checking anymore, so they can do anything they want. 
this could give an added tax benefit, time explains, to donors who have recently funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into independent political campaign spending. It has become, in effect, quote, deductible dark money. Great! Not only are they going to use dark money to bribe all of our politicians, and they're going to keep it secret, but on top of that, they're going to get a tax break for it. Perfect Republican scheme. You see what the IRS so-called scandal was about? The real scandal was the scandal. The fact that they created a fake scandal to make sure the IRS didn't do its job. And just in case uh, that wasn't clear enough, they also cut its budget. Time Magazine also explains, according to the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office, the overall IRS budget was cut by nearly $950 million, or around 7.8% from 2010 to 2013. Take more of those cops off the beat, and the robbers go nuts. That's the whole point of deductible dark money. And to those, today, those dark forces have another huge victory. Our media should have done a much better job of pointing out what the real point of this nonsense fake scandal was. As it is, the Fox News of the world, the Republicans of the world, drummed up this controversy and got exactly what they wanted. Only one way to fight back, man. <laughs> when we get an amendment, 28th Amendment, take money out of politics, we're not going to have a conversation about, like, oh, is it deductible? Is it dark money? Is it light money? What kind of money are you using to bribe our politicians? No, no, there's going to be no bribing of the politicians. If you don't like it, sad day for you. We're coming. Wolf-pack.com. Join the fight, man. I mean, look at how out of control this is. They're spitting in your eye. They're like, yeah, we're going to bribe them. We're not going to tell you who's giving the bribes. And on top of that, we're going to pretend we're a charity and get a tax deduction. Are you going to sit there and take it all day long, all year long, all decade long? Or are you going to get up and fight? We're going to take all money out of politics. Public financing, not of just some elections, all elections. Because they work for the people who write their checks. So if we publicly finance the elections, that means, oh, they say, oh my God, that takes taxpayer money. You idiots, they're taking trillions of dollars in tax money. And they're giving it to their donors. At least if we paid the bill and said, okay, here are the guys who collected enough signatures, etc., that are going to run against one another, they get an equal amount of money, then at least we'd have a real debate. If conservatives win that debate, great. If liberals win it, great. But let's have a democracy. And if we write their checks, they might actually work for us. Think it through. The second part of the amendment is about corporate personhood. And some people say, oh my God, Jake, are you going to take away all corporate personhood? I mean, aren't they at least half human? No, they're not human at all. They have all the rights that they were endowed with their, by their creator. We are their creator. We give them whatever rights that they have. How insane and out of control is it that the Supreme Court says, no, no, no. <laughs> Corporations, which are legal fictions created by mankind, have natural rights. They have rights like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and you can't mess with them. <laughs> it's an out of control machine. And every day it gets worse. When are you going to stand up and fight?
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I am going to play a couple of voicemails for you, but uh, I want to preface them first. They're both going to be from uh, Professor Rambo. He's called in before. Many people will recognize his voice or his perspective. And uh, I, I have to preface this because this voicemail comes out of an exchange I was having with uh, Professor Rambo via Twitter yesterday, actually bleeding over into today. And I will just tell you how my day started yesterday. So, you know, first, the the topic is Ray Rice He's an NFL player who got suspended after the video of him dragging an unconscious, uh, you know, his, his girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, dragging her by her hair out of an elevator. That video leaked to the press a while ago, and then yesterday the full video was released showing him, uh, you know, actually attacking her and so on. So I wake up yesterday to a text message from Katie, you know, who works with the show, and Katie asks, Professor Rambo is a best of left caller, right? Because he's been in my Twitter timeline all morning blaming Janae Rice for being married to an abuser. And so keep in mind, like, I've just woken up. I'm sort of hazy. But, you know, I, I read this. I know who Professor Rambo is. And I, I kind of maybe I glance at the at the you know Twitter timeline. And my response is he is a caller. He's also a black man who believes in the validity of respectability politics. And I know this because, as I said to Katie, he and I disagreed on the show about this a couple of months, a uh, couple of months back. So this is actually right in line with that way of thinking. And Katie responded, "Ah, yes, this makes sense now." So I have some messages from Professor Rambo the, the, to tell the story completely chronologically as it happened would take you know, an hour, but, uh, I, I will let Professor Rambo speak in his own words at this moment. And I will uh, jump in as necessary. Hey, what's up, Jay? This is Professor Rambo from Georgia, man. Um, I guess I'm calling to chime in on the Ray Rice situation and, uh, how I kind of think feminism. I don't know. I, I guess my new word for feminism after today would be bullyism. You know, it just seems like every time somebody has a question about anything that has to do with anything, they were always looked at as being politically incorrect. Okay, so Professor Rambo feels bullied by the feminists. I just want to go over you know, a few things that were actually said so we're all on the same page. He begins this conversation with Katie uh, on Twitter by asking the question, what causes women to marry and stay with abusers? And that question in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. The problem is he should have put that in Google instead of directing it at Katie. Google would have come up with 300 articles documenting the dozens and dozens of really complicated, nuanced reasons, you know, emotional, financial, logistical, you know, everything you can imagine, really dozens of reasons why people stay with abusive partners. If he actually wanted to know the answer to that question, that would have been a better place to put that uh, to put the question in Google rather than asking Katie like she's his, you know, personal librarian who can go and pull resources for him to peruse. But things really go off the rails with his next question in the very same tweet. Does Janae hurt the cause of ending domestic violence by remaining silent? Which I would contend is not really a question at all. It's actually a statement in the form of a question. This is this is worthy of like Fox News level discourse of, hey, I'm just asking a question. I'm I'm pleading innocence because it has a question mark at the end. But what he's really saying is, 
Janae needs to speak out. It is her duty as a victim to speak out. And if she doesn't, then she is hurting the cause of ending domestic violence, or at least I'm going to really strongly insinuate that she might be hurting the cause of ending domestic violence by remaining silent. So let's see what sort of abuse he gets from the feminists. Katie responds, If you and the other dude bros in my mentions want to know, but why does she stay, do some reading. And to be fair, dude bros is definitely used as a pejorative in, in this instance. So Professor Rambo uh, responds, I do read, and I'm not here to be insulted. So he's immediately on the defensive. He, he has started a conversation with Katie and then didn't like how she responded to him because she's dealing with hundreds of people tweeting at her in this exact same way as if she owes them a response. But he, he doesn't like how she responded to him. So he, he feels insulted immediately and then says, I'm simply asking why we are being more vocal about Ray Rice than the actual victim. So again, putting the onus on the victim for you know, defending herself and then judging, really like, hey, if she's not going to speak out, then why should we? Professor Rambo thinks that the actions of a victim need to be judged and determine, like, if she doesn't respond to her abuse in the way that I deem to be appropriate, then, you know, maybe she doesn't deserve my support. So other people chime in. One person says, because the cycle of abuse is hard to break and potentially deadly. Another person says, read up on domestic violence. Learn what it does psychologically to the victim. She needs support, not blame. You know, like, real real bullying here happening to Professor Rambo. Say, for instance, the Trayvon Martin is to, before we talk about Ray Rice, you know, you say, well... I mean, if I was in a neighborhood and I saw, uh, you know, a, a black kid I've never seen before with a black hoodie on, just kind of hanging around the corner, would I be wrong to think that he was up to something bad? And obviously Trayvon wasn't that night. He was walking from the store. But am I wrong to just think? You know, and of course, if you would have said something then, you know, you'd have been jumped on as a racist and, you know, would, would have been thrown in a politically incorrect jail. So, you know, as horrified as I was to hear him say this, I was also pretty excited because I couldn't believe how impeccably I had nailed it. You know, early in the morning, groggy, waking up, I saw him coming a million miles away. You know, I, I wake up, Katie tells me Professor Rambo is, is victim blaming, uh, casting a suspicious eye on the victim of domestic abuse. And, you know, suggesting that her actions are inappropriate or, or, you know, should be condemned. Well, yeah, you know, he believes in respectability politics. He blames victims after the fact and suggests that it's appropriate to cast a suspicious eye on people who don't deserve to have a suspicious eye cast on them. So, yeah, he did it in the case of Trayvon Martin. Now he's doing it with Janae Rice. Who's surprised? And luckily, he laid it out for me, so I didn't even have to. I guess this is where we're leading to now with this um, Ray Rice situation. Early on Twitter, I guess I've engaged a few of your listeners and contributors, but um, I simply asked the question of, you know, is is uh, Miss Janae Rice wrong with staying with, with Ray Rice? And you know, can we can we get her side of the story? Here's the thing: it's perfectly normal for you to want to hear her side of the story, but that doesn't mean she owes it to you. You want to hear it? Maybe she doesn't want to tell it to you. So fuck off. She doesn't owe anything to anyone. And what's profoundly wrong is to think that if she doesn't respond in the way you think appropriate, that that should change whether or not you support her as a victim of domestic violence or condemn the actions of her abuser. I 
mean, this incident happened a month before they was married, I believe. You know, somebody knocked me out unconscious in an elevator. I seriously doubt 30 days later I'm going to be at the altar with this person. And I understand Stockholm Syndrome. I understand all that, you know, all those uh, psychology, Sigmund Freud, whatever, whatever. I'm, I just want to, you know, speak just real, just real common sense. And, you know, I really just think it comes down to, and I'll just be honest with you, money. If you're familiar with the psychological and the Sigmund Freud and the whatever whatevers, then why narrow it down to money? If you actually knew about this issue, you would understand that financial dependence is often an element of why people stay with their abusive partners. But again, it's only one of dozens of really complicated, interconnected reasons why people stay with abusers. So why insist on narrowing it down to just that one? if not to cast blame on her for her actions. I don't want to say, I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm going to piss off a thousand listeners, but I, I seriously believe that if Ray Rice, you know, flipped burgers at the Waffle House or Wendy's and he knocked his, 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 his fiancée unconscious, she would have left him that day. Again, no one is denying that financial considerations are often a factor in an abuse victim's decision to not leave their abuser. But again, it is one of dozens of really complicated, interconnected reasons. And so for him to focus in on money and decide without any evidence, that is the primary reason she stayed. And, you know, as if because she's married to a rich person, she doesn't have the incredibly complicated emotional turmoil that goes along with an abusive relationship is baffling to me. So at this point, he continues his voicemail a little while longer, but he sort of repeats himself a few times. So I'll skip ahead to his next message uh, that he leaves a few hours later in the day after he and I had had uh, sort of a long exchange on Twitter during which he had apologized for a couple of the things he had posted on Twitter that day. Hey, what's up, Jay? This is Professor Rambo again, man, from Georgia. Um, I know this is my second time calling in today, but um, I've had a little time to I guess chill out a little and uh, drank a little coffee and just kind of collect my thoughts about, uh, you know, earlier. I guess the reason why, I mean, I guess people sent out one on a little Twitter rampage or a little Twitter ran or um, the voicemail that I left earlier might have seemed a little crazy. But I guess I was a little frustrated and a little flustered by, uh, I guess, all the comments coming from Twitter. I called out Professor Rambo on Twitter yesterday for this exact claim, the idea that he was just asking questions, because what actually happened was he posed these questions, but when people answered him, he responded at least once with, quote, she stayed with him because he has money, point blank, period, hate me if you want. So his claims that he was just asking questions, trying to get other people's opinions, I said, it didn't sound like he was very open to opinions to me. I continue, I said, uh, you sounded like you were making a statement in the form of a question, then when challenged, you just made the statement. I said, can you at least see how it was perceived that way by others, even if you didn't intend it that way? And that was one of the instances where he said, yeah, I understand, and I apologize for that statement. So maybe his intention was to simply ask questions, but I have to say, and I read all of them, he did a profoundly bad job of that. You know, we're out here speaking so much about Ray, Ray Rice and um, what happened to his lady. Where is she at in this whole situation? I want to hear her side of the story or why she decided to marry him a month later after the incident. And people, you know, I guess the, the people felt offended and said I was victim blaming. You know, I, I never once said it was Ray Rice's wife's fault why she was punched in the face. 
Again, you are utterly confused about the problem people are having with you. They're saying that you are re-victimizing her after the fact by judging her actions after her abuse. To, to say that support for her as a victim is contingent on her acting in a way that you deem to be appropriate. You say in a tweet at one point, you can demonize me all you want. I'm not feeling bad for someone who knowingly marries an abuser. So you think that an abuse victim doesn't deserve respect and dignity and support because of the actions she took after the abuse. All the while, you say this, all the while, while not showing a lick of interest in the nuances and details of why people might marry abusive partners. Again, it's the worst of all possible combinations, flagrant ignorance and confidence. I simply said, hey, I'm here, a lot of, I mean, thousands of people are speaking out against Ray Rice and what he did. I'm just curious to know where she's at or what she has to say or what she feels about the situation, you know, and I'm not saying that it's her job or that she has to speak out, just like it's not our job or our duty to speak out against spouse abuse, but I'm I'm just curious to know, you know, how she felt about this whole situation, being that is her husband. Well, I'm glad to hear that you recognize that it is not her responsibility to speak out on her abuse, so I can only hope that you also recognize how terrible it was of you to make comments pressuring her to speak out and suggesting that her silence made her uh, is somewhat complicit in her abuse, or even worse, actually a detriment to the movement to end domestic violence in its entirety. But I do have good news for you, because whereas it is no abuse victim's responsibility to tell their story, it turns out lots of them do anyways, and you can learn from it. Anyone can. Uh, just for instance, uh, there was an article posted on thefrisky.com today po uh, called Why I Married My Abuser. Also, there's a hashtag now on Twitter, Hashtag why I stayed to create a community of people getting together to sort of commiserate in their shared experiences, yet their individual stories of why they stayed in abusive relationships. So what Janae Rice's particular story is really is irrelevant as much as it would be interesting for you to hear it. It is none of your business until she decides she wants to tell the story. You know, I just want to apologize to yes, Katie if she thought I was trying to come off to a certain way, man. But um, it gets frustrating whenever you just ask a few questions here and there and you have 10,000 feminists or whoever people claim to be coming to put your head on a platter. That kind of gets aggravating when you just ask you simple questions trying to understand things. But, uh, you know, it kind of happens to anybody. Words get taken out of context. And that's just social media for you, you know. But um, keep up the great work, man. I'm pretty sure you're going to have a great, a great uh, show coming up on this. And we'll see you then. Thanks, man. I'm sure it felt like a very innocent act to ask the questions that you were asking, and I'm sure it was very difficult to be told by a lot of experts in a field that your opinions of that field were wrong when you clearly don't know much about it. Uh, and I'm sure that Katie appreciates the apology, but I guarantee you are underestimating the level of apology required at this point. Uh, I had a sense of how Katie felt about it, and I, I just asked her, and she gave me this statement right now. She says, I field a lot of questions and comments. My online and personal space is invaded regularly. I routinely disclose that I am a survivor, as I had several times yesterday before he began a series of victim-blaming tweets directed only at me. 
even with all the content I have to sift through, his messages were very triggering. I have relatively thick skin, but I have never heard someone who claims to be a progressive, a feminist even, declare that we shouldn't support a victim of intimate partner violence because she, quote, makes the enemy eggs, which is a reference to a tweet that I, I think I didn't even mention earlier. Uh, one of his early tweets was, I'm asking why we are being soldiers on the front while the victim is cooking eggs for the enemy, which was, uh, yeah, a, a very uh, classy way of putting it. But finally, to address the idea of simply asking questions, I highly, highly recommend that everyone go check out the article. Uh, this is from Lindy West. It's posted on Jezebel from 2013. The title is Quit Fucking Asking Me Questions. A refresher course, which will give you a little bit of insight into what it's like to be a very active feminist on the internet and all of the unbelievable bullshit they have to deal with on a regular basis. I think uh, put into context, it would put Professor Rambo's uh, hurt feelings from the one incident of feeling bullied by some feminists to shame given what they have to go through every single day on a regular basis. Uh, Katie was telling me today about how it's essentially nonstop, just a barrage of bullshit that she has to deal with regularly. I said that, you know, feminists really need to work on like a firefighter's schedule, like maybe 24-hour shift on and then two days off at least because, you know, just for health and safety reasons, they need at least that much recovery time after dealing with the sort of bullshit they do. So I'm going to wrap up real quick. I almost never focus on one person so much or go so long, but I feel like Professor Rambo was maybe indicative of lots of people who are profoundly wrongheaded on uh, these types of issues and that it deserved a little bit of delving. So that'll be it for today. Thanks for listening. Stay awesome. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained